The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to a special episode of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Spider-Man Far From Home, the latest release from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and what is generally considered the finale of Marvel's Phase 3. Obviously, the ultimate chapter in that film franchise really was Avengers Endgame. However, this is really kind of an epilogue to that. It takes place about mm, a year or so afterwards. Effectively, it takes place a school year afterwards. And we follow Peter Parker, who is off on a trip to Europe that gets kind of taken over by being Spider-Man and Nick Fury. So Far From Home was released on July 2nd. It was directed by John Watts, written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, and it stars Tom Holland, Samuel L. Jackson, Jake Gyllenhaal, Marissa Tomei, John Favreau, and Zendaya. Overall, I really enjoyed this movie. It was a lot of fun. There were some really great, heartfelt moments. It did a lot to address at least some of the issues that Endgame left with, but also it had, it dealt with what happens in this effective power vacuum, right? Captain America's gone, Iron Man's gone, Thor is off in space. So the big three of the Avengers are nowhere to be found. And the question that gets asked a lot in this film is who's in charge? Who is now running the Avengers? And it's something that Peter Parker really struggles to deal with because he feels in a lot of ways that Tony Stark picked him personally and that it's his responsibility to live up to Tony Stark's memory. And there's a lot of debate in both internally to Spider-Man and between Peter and various other characters, especially John Favreau's Happy Hogan, as to exactly what that means and, and whether or not he he wants it. You know, can anyone repla replace Iron Man? Can anyone fill his shoes? And is that something that Peter Parker wants? Again, Peter Parker is a teenager. He's a He's a kid. Yes, he thoroughly believes in the with great power comes great responsibility. But at the same time, there is that feeling of I still just want to be a kid and do the things that guys my age do. And that's also a, a strong theme that runs through this film that I don't want to say coming of age, but the life of a high school nerd. The film does an excellent job of portraying the awkwardness and uncertainty of teenage romance. Tom Holland does an excellent job really just kind of fumbling over life, figuring out how to express to MJ how he feels. And, you know, he's got this elaborate plan and it just kind of goes to hell as the plot of the film develops. 
and he doesn't know what to do and he's built this all up in his head and he's just super awkward when he finally gets to try and tell MJ. She's really awkward at several times in the film when the two of them are together. It's just very well done. In some regards, it reminded me a little too closely of my time in high school and I think there are a lot of people out there who would agree with that sentiment. So since I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself here, let's talk about the actual plot of the film. So Spider-Man is off doing his Spider-Man stuff and really they're trying to recover from what has come to be referred to as the blip which is the five years that people were missing which the film in a couple of different ways does a great job of addressing and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second so Peter Parker is finished up high is finishing up high school and he is going on a school science trip across Europe which I mean I get like he's a at a science-based school but like a science trip through Europe is a little bit odd to me you know i can understand art and culture and history you know those are the things we most closely associate you know europe with obviously there is still plenty of science things like cern and whatnot but you know a science trip to europe is a little bit a little bit odd but at any rate the class goes when they arrive in venice there is a giant water elemental that attacks while they are off doing tourist stuff and it's stopped by a mysterious figure whom based on the italian word for mystery mysterio the high schoolers including peter parker begin to call mysterio later on peter parker is approached by samuel L. jackson and taken to a kind of secret shield base in venice where he actually meets mysterio gentleman by the name of quentin beck from there they offer to they ask peter to help them defeat the final elemental and save the world peter declines so nick fury being nick fury manipulates events so that peter ends up exactly where nick fury wants him they fight this elemental and peter and beck begin to develop a closeness now one of the things that happens earlier in the film is that happy gives i'm sorry nick fury gives peter a set of glasses from iron man basically as, as a kind of going away gift if you will and this gives peter access to pretty much all of stark's security tech well as a result of peter's trying to decide back and forth as to what he wants to do and his place in the world um, as the replacement for Iron Man or not. He decides that Beck is really the person who should take this over. So he gives the glasses and the AI that comes with the glasses to Beck, who turns out to have been a former Stark employee who is, along with other former Stark employees, basically bent on taking over now that he's gone, now that Stark is gone. They're going to become the heroes. A lot of them are very disgruntled and feel as if uh tony stark is is should have left these kinds of things to them this technology as opposed to peter parker so that's the that's the the, the big kind of overlying of the of the film that's that's the major plot of the film it's a pretty solid plot we do get to bounce around europe quite a bit we go from venice to prague to germany and then to uh london finally where the big climactic battle takes place because climactic battles in london are fun i just, i don't know why but there's a lot of cool things you can 
can do there. So with regards to what the film does in terms of dealing with the blip, what I really liked, one, is that they didn't try and glaze over it. They basically acknowledged, hey, there's a whole bunch of people who have been gone for just five years, and there is some degree of having to reintegrate them into society. It's really funny because they show they show the blip, they show the decimation when uh, at Peter's high school, and there's a bunch of people at a pep rally, and like half the marching band disappears and things like that. And then when they show up five years later, it's in the middle of a basketball game. So basketball players just start slamming into these random band members that appeared out of nowhere. So that was that was really an interesting idea that the fact that they didn't just like, you know, show up all in one spot. They basically just came right back to where they were doing exactly what they were doing. It's something that we didn't really get a good sense of during Endgame. And I liked that. Um, I liked how they addressed the idea that although people are technically five years older, they're really not. So society is kind of addressing that i think kind of on an informal basis we see peter's classmate flash try and get a drink on the plane and then they find that he blipped and he's technically 16 um the other thing is part of the opening of the film has aunt may and peter raising money for those people who became homeless due to the blip because you know people disappeared from apartments so other people moved in in those five years i think that's like a really great just little touch because it's like the things you don't think about but that would be impacted because of this you know half the population disappears you know it really kind of depends on you know who and what and where so i i appreciate the film for for dealing with the blip talking about jake gyllenhaal's character of quentin beck of, of mysterio i think gyllenhaal did an absolutely spectacular job in the first half of the film portraying someone that peter can look up to and to be that mentor figure that that Spider-Man has lost, right? He's really becoming a surrogate Iron Man who is really a surrogate Uncle Ben, who was really a surrogate father. So like Peter's had these men in his lives that have tried to be this paternal figure and they keep disappearing on him, right? His father d- dies, Uncle Ben dies, Iron Man now dies. So like he's just, he's latched on now to Quentin Beck. One, I think that's a, a, a really interesting idea to, to, to build that relationship between these two. Secondly, I think Gyllenhaal does an amazing job just selling it. He is really a person who is, is willing to listen. He's a sympathetic ear. He is caring. He tries to give... Peter the best advice he can. Obviously, he's manipulating Peter and kind of slowly pushing him into a particular direction to suit his ends. But at the same time, the advice he's giving isn't necessarily bad, right? Peter needs to make this choice. And a lot of the things Mysterio is saying are really the things that Peter does need to think about. Mysterio is using them to push Peter towards the decision of of not trying to fill that void, of not being a big superhero, a big time superhero superhero. Now, the right decision, obviously, for Peter is the other way, is to be Spider-Man and do those things. But all the things that Beck talks about him needing to evaluate are are valid things. In the second half of the film, when we find out more about Mysterio, I think Gyllenhaal does a good job of portraying him as a villain. My only complaint is that he turns into a little bit too much of a diva. The character does, not Gyllenhaal himself. Now, obviously, some of that has to do with the writing of the film, but I think some of it is also Gyllenhaal's portrayal. I think at times it actually feels like you've got two separate people, and I think he could have played Mysterio a little bit differently to give you the sense that that first person was still in there, but that, you know, again, he was he was really trying to drive for 
something else. Whereas the way it's portrayed, Gyllenhaal is really having Beck play a part and that that first half person doesn't really exist. Honestly, I do feel, though, that my favorite interactions outside of Peter and MJ, because those are just so good and Zendaya is so very talented, is Peter and Happy and Jon Favreau. Obviously, you know, Jon Favreau has such deep ties to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He directed the first two Iron Man films. He's also played Happy Hogan in every appearance that he's done. So to see Favreau help wrap up phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is very satisfying. And it's also nice to see him warm up to Peter. If you remember back in Spider-Man Homecoming, he's very standoffish with Peter, right? He doesn't have a whole lot of patience for Peter and his exuberance at being surrounded by all these superheroes and people he idolizes. In this, Happy is far more paternal. Again, we're coming back to that idea of a paternal figure, but Happy is very genuine about it. Now, it's funny saying he's paternal because he is also quietly pursuing a romantic relationship with with Aunt May, with Marissa Tomei's character, and that adds a, a nice little lighthearted humor. It's funny to watch Happy kind of go down that road a little bit and, and kind of that relationship while paralleling with Peter and MJ's relationship. And it's a little bit smoother, but but even still, you know, Happy's he's not that smooth. But at any rate, the relationship between the two is is really great. I think in part because they both had that closeness to Tony Stark, to Iron Man, and they're both suffering from that loss. And Happy is beginning to see in Peter the things that Tony saw in him. There's a great scene towards the end of the film where Peter is building a new Spider-Man suit and he puts together this hologram and then slides his hand in and starts manipulating the hologram exactly the same way that Tony did in the first Iron Man. So we, there's, there's that connection and as Happy sees this, he puts on ACDC back in black, which again is one of the songs used in the first Iron Man film. And it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful connection. But the fact that Hap, you can actually watch Happy make this. And, you know, the two of them talk about how they miss Tony. And I think Happy gives him the, the best, I don't want to necessarily, say, necessarily call it advice, but certainly the best take on Tony Stark. Because he's, he's known him for so long that he was his best friend. And he tells him, you know, nobody could live up to Tony, not even Tony. And without going into, you know, the myriad of personality flaws that Tony had during the MCU and then even before that, before he becomes Iron Man, he really gets the point across to to Peter that, you know, we've all got this massively built up idea of who Tony Stark was, but in the end, he was just a man, just a guy. And that, you know, you're not trying to fill these shoes this, this, and this be this unachievable person. You are perfectly capable of doing it because you are flawed just in the same way that Tony was flawed. And I, I think that's a an important lesson for Peter to learn, especially with the idea, you know, that we're moving forward here. Visually, there is a lot to enjoy about this film. I think the fight scenes are very well done. They make great use of Spider-Man's acrobatic abilities. Uh, it's interesting, director John Watts, looking at, at what he's done before, he he did direct Spider-Man Homecoming, but before that, he was really an unknown in, in the film industry. He really directed music videos, which by no means is to disparage the man because there have been a lot of 
extremely talented directors to come out of commercials and and music videos. But I think to jump into the saddle with a couple of movies that have a lot of action and are somewhat dependent on a, upon a particular style of action because of of who Spider-Man is and, and what his abilities are, I think the film does a really good job of capturing that. Now, obviously, there are some shaky camera moments and things like that, but overall, I think the film is, is very well shot. Now, I do want to touch on the two post-credit scenes, the mid-credit and the post-credit scene. Uh, starting with the mid-credit, that was one of the biggest WTF moments I've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, the first thing is that I absolutely enjoyed, and I say I really loved seeing J.K. Simmons back as J. Jonah Jameson, because there is no actor on Earth who is more perfect for that role than that man. I also like that they incorporated the idea of him, instead of running a newspaper, running a news website like a Breitbart or a Drudge Report kind of site. Um, I wouldn't say it's taken directly from, but it has a similar feel to the like talk radio that shows up in the Spider-Man game uh, on the PlayStation, where where J. Jonah Jameson is the talk radio host as opposed to the newspaper editor. Um, so that was great. And then the big moment where Mysterio and his kind of dying act unmasks Spider-Man and then blames Spider-Man for his death and the death of a bunch of other people. One obviously sets up the next film pretty substantially. In a lot of ways, takes Spider-Man to a place where we're a little bit more familiar with him from the comics, where he's not this beloved character within the Marvel Universe, obviously fans love him, but where he's more hated or more considered, to quote Jonah Jameson, a menace. So I like that positioning of Peter. I think the response of Peter and honestly, the people around him, especially Zendaya, as she's standing next to him, seeing this this revelation, I don't think she believes it, but there's that certainly gives a lot for them to work with. And I think it's going to create a very interesting plot device for Peter to overcome. Now, it, it does, to some extent, remind me of Batman the Dark Knight, where Batman gets accused of the mur murder of Harvey Dent, so he kind of has to go on the run into hiding. There's a certain feel of that to it, but obviously Batman wasn't unmasked, and in general, I think, given the lighter tone of the Marvel Cinematic Universe this is going to play out differently, at least. The post credit scene, which didn't really shock me all that much. I didn't expect it, but it wasn't anywhere near the stunner that the mid-credit was, shows Nick Fury and Maria Hill turning out to be Skrulls. And in fact, Nick Fury is Talos, the Skrull from Captain Marvel. Now, having said that, this is not Nick Fury having been replaced by a scroll, because as part of this scene, Talos calls Nick Fury and they talk about what happened. And then we find out that Nick Fury is on some kind of space station, uh, presumably in orbit of Earth, but it didn't really seem all that clear. And the station is at least in part manned by more scrolls. So I like that this is this continuation from 
Captain Marvel and from the idea of the Skrulls being these refugees and giving them some place to be. And that Nick Fury has been working with them and like hiding them and things to use and to build up this this space station. There is a certain part of me that thinks maybe this is a prelude to some kind of secret invasion. But I think based on the portrayal of the Skrulls in Captain Marvel and the way they're seen working with Fury, I don't think that's a, a direction that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to take. So with regards to uh, the box office, you know, Spider-Man seems to be doing... I would say pretty well. Um, opening day on Tuesday, which is when I saw it, was $39 million, just a little bit short of $40 million for a single opening day, especially for a weekday. Obviously, it was before the 4th of July holiday. Uh, unfortunately, at this point, Box Office Mojo doesn't have numbers for uh, Wednesday and Thursday. But based on that opening weekend, they're looking at about a $125 million opening over the, the course of the six days. That's not bad. It's not mind-boggling, it's not unbelievable, but I think it is certainly a respectable value for for this film. Especially it's got a budget of 160 million. I would like to see them start pulling that those budgets back a bit. Um but certainly with a budget like that, I think Marvel and, and Disney will, will make back a lot of their money. I don't think this is going to be a, a, a losing proposition for them. So again, overall, uh, I really enjoyed Far From Home. It's not a mind-blowingly excellent film, but it's a lot of fun. There are some really great character development moments, and I think it does a good job, A, of wrapping up a number of the questions that people may have had following Endgame, and it's a good set up for moving ahead into phase four it's not a super plot heavy uh you know drive this doesn't tell me what phase four is going to be all about but it it throws some balls up in the air and is going to let us play with those and, and see where they go remember you can find us at avengersassembly.com you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and you can find this podcast on itunes soundcloud and youtube next week we will be returning to our regularly scheduled programming all right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>